0: Welcome to the Teen Life Podcast, where we believe that teenagers are not a problem to be solved, but we are here to help you equip teenagers through the power of connection. My name is Chris Roby, and across from me is Carly Duke.
1: Hello. So,
0: Carly, uh, we are starting a first and four series uh, over the holidays called TL Selects. It's kind of a new thing we're doing, and that's a re-release of <laughs> old stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about this, I really Chris. am, too. Yeah, so we're, we're going in a deep dive, uh, and... Teen Life Podcast History, where we did more of a long-form format. Um, Our new podcasts are a little bit shorter now, but we did long-form interviews with people we thought were really, really interesting on topics we thought were really, really important. And for this week and next week, we have a two-parter for you with Suzanne Stabile, who talks about the Enneagram and teenagers.
1: I am a little obsessed with Suzanne. Yeah. And so as you're listening to this audio, first of all, we recorded this in December of 2018 is when this first released. Three years ago. So that is a long time, mm-hmm. especially in podcast years. But if you hear us <laughs> not talking as much, it is because I think me and Chris were just in awe of the wisdom of Suzanne Stabile. And we
0: had heard Suzanne on, on podcast and read her book. So, I mean, a little starstruck and just, you know, just in the way that she <laughs> talked about things and, um, you know, when we showed up. Uh, she kind of looked at us. She goes, do you want me to talk about teenagers and Enneagram? And how, I mean, just very like right in line with what we we're talking about. I'm like, yeah. And then she just sat in a rift for an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, And like, it was incredible. Uh, a lot of wisdom in this interview.
1: It was. So this is one that if you listen to our gift guide, we went through some personality traits of teenagers mm-hmm. and those were based off the Enneagram. So that's why we thought this episode in particular would be helpful for you. Because she doesn't go into the details of Enneagram. So if you have never heard of the Enneagram and want to do an even deeper dive, we will link our other podcast episodes on the Enneagram. But she is really going to focus on teenagers and how teenagers might act out some of these personality traits. And then what we as adults and helpers can do to best connect with them in a way that makes sense to them.
0: Yeah, and Suzanne covers uh, the numbers one through four out of the nine in this uh, episode. And we'll we'll make this uh, disclaimer here in, uh, on the second part. Uh, this is early days teen life on uh, podcasts, and so uh, audio, audio quality isn't quite what we are uh, used to with our new run. And so if you hear some pops and clicks and all that kind of stuff, it's just stuff that we weren't really messing with back then. So um, it's not too bad, but just a uh, heads up on that.
1: Yeah. And then finally, before we kick it off to Suzanne, you will notice, especially in this first episode, she talks about how she is focused on Enneagram in crisis mm-hmm. and how it affects relationships. And what is so cool when I was re-listening to this is she was talking about this three years ago. And this fall, she just released a new book called The Journey Toward Wholeness Mm -hmm. that is all about this crisis and trauma and relationships Mm -hmm. and the Enneagram. So if you enjoy her conversation, go check out her new book. Um, I will also link her other books that she's done, but pay attention. She's going to say this, but I want to point out my favorite quote from this Mm -hmm. episode to kind of kick us off, Chris. And she's going to say, the best thing you can do if you work with adolescents is be healthy yourself. Today we're here with Suzanne Stabile. Just, man, we're so excited to be mm-hmm. here and um, with an expert in the Enneagram um, and all the work that she's been doing for years and years, decades in the Enneagram. Um, and so not only are we excited to have her expertise on the Enneagram, but also her um, expertise in adolescence too and how they relate to the Enneagram. So Suzanne, um, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit of your background in Enneagram just to kind of set the stage as we start today?
2: Sure. Actually, my husband and I um, asked to have a meeting with Father Richard Rohr a long time ago, and um, if you don't know about Richard, he is one of the first people to publish anything about the Enneagram, and um, his work that we all still rely on in Christian communities is the Enneagram A Christian Perspective. And um, he became a mentor and a spiritual director for us for a number of years. And early on in our relationship, uh, I read his book and kind of took to the Enneagram and went to Albuquerque a couple of times and spent some significant time with him exploring what I thought about it and how hopeful I thought it was and that my interest was more than passing. And he suggested that I study it for five years without talking about it. And um, I did. I, I did because I knew I wanted to take it seriously. And in that five years, I discovered that it's so much more than it appears to be. It's deceptively simple and that there's so much more that we could do with it so while i'm really excited about its popularity right now and in the last few years i think there are two sides to everything and i think the downside to the new popularity of the enneagram is that it gives you a lot in the very beginning and then people don't go after the rest Hmm. and um There's just so much more than just knowing what your number is. And so I'm not a fan of tests or indicators. I think people need to learn it in the long form, whether or not that's oral or uh, the road back to you is really a good primer. I'm really proud of it. And I think then people have a starting place for incrementally doing more and more anagram work. Mm. I've been at it a long time. I'm, I'm um, particularly focused right now on the anti and crisis and how that affects relationships. And my work ever evolves over the years because I've known it for so long and taught it for so long. So I'm excited about some new work that I'm doing that might, in some circumstances, be of particular interest to your audience in terms of trauma or crisis or... Mm. Um, special needs or um, particular segments of the population. Right.
1: Talking through a lot of our audience, they're thinking about this in the context of teenagers. Mm-hmm. So how does the Enneagram relate to teenagers? Is it different than adults? How do they find their number? All of, I mean, just kind of the beginning of the Enneagram for a teenager. What does that look like?
2: I, um, for a long time, didn't teach the Enneagram to anybody younger than 18. I've moved that down to 16 now, but I primarily teach adults. I think that if adolescents are going to learn the Enneagram, it has to be done in a space where nobody disagrees with them about what they think their number is and where nobody puts a number on them during the process or before they start. So one of the things that doesn't get said often enough is that your Enneagram number is determined by motivation for behavior and not by behavior. And so children and young adolescents tend to pay so much attention to behavior, their own and other people's, that they aren't aware of motivation much. And when you you miss that, then you mistype people Hmm. and that causes people to dismiss the value of the wisdom that we're talking about. So I, I actually think that, um, working with adolescents with the Enneagram requires facilitators who don't have a dog in the hunt is my language facilitators who don't need anybody in the room to identify the way they see them or the way they want them to. And then I think it needs to be a process. So, um, I prefer it when the Enneagram taught orally. I do think the road back to you is written in a way that it could, it could work for people to, um, for groups maybe, to do three numbers at one time as assigned reading, and then people kind of identify with that or not. And then I think all that needs to be held very loosely. So if next year those adolescents think they're actually not that number, there's plenty of room for that, and plenty of room for growing into enough self-understanding and self-awareness of motivation to be able to identify correctly. Having said that, Um, I always tell people when I'm teaching, uh, you should never assign numbers to people. You'll probably get it wrong. And then I follow with, but I know you're going to. So just leave room for the space that you might get it wrong. And I think it's particularly likely that you might get it wrong if you're not pretty Enneagram-wise because adolescents spend so much time in stress.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: So, you know, the thing that differentiates the Enneagram from other tools that are like it or other systems that are like it is that it's not static. And that means there's movement all the time. And if you look at a core number and you recognize that in the first half of life, they're going to have some behavior from one wing, which is the number on either side of them. In the second half of life, they add behavior from the other wing, but that's not usually available in the first half of life. And then you're aware of intuitive moves to stress and security and behavior in those two numbers. And then you add on top of that the layer that adolescents are so often stressed because it's such a stressful time. Then the opportunity for misidentifying is pretty uh, significant, Mm -hmm. I think. In terms of working with adolescents, I think if you know the Enneagram, you can work with people wherever you encounter them. So uh, when you got here, we were just finishing a Facebook Live thing where we were talking about ones on the Enneagram. And you could be a one, or you could be a seven in stress and behave like a one. Mm -hmm. Or you could be a four in security and behave like a one. You um, need to be aware that one behavior is sometimes really strong if it's a wing. So I think the best thing that I have to offer your audience is to talk about what the struggles are for each of the nine numbers in their core number. And then know that that struggle would bleed over into um, a stress number, but wouldn't include motivation. Right. Is that helpful? Is that what you want?
1: Yes, I think that'd be incredibly Absolutely. helpful as you're talking through um, teenagers have struggles and even your work that you're doing right now in crisis, you yeah. see a lot of teenagers in that. So exactly. what mm-hmm. does that look like from an Enneagram perspective? Yeah.
2: So I'm, I'm, I'm going to get right to that. I want to make sure that I say that the best thing you can do if you work with adolescents is be healthy yourself. mm mm-hmm and the best gift you have to give is to be healthy in your own number and then the best gift after that is to be enough of a student of the enneagram that you know how other people hear because the reason adolescents feel talked at so much instead of talked to is because of all of our different enneagram numbers we're not mindful of how they hear we're just mindful of what we have to say and how we want it to affect them. Mm. And so if you if there's a disconnect between how you say what you say and how they're able to receive information, then you're already in trouble. And as a preamble to all of this, I want to say that my daughter, who's now 40, who's an aide on the Enneagram, called me one morning, uh, maybe two years ago, and said you know, I, I, I don't think the golden rule applies to AIDS. And that's something an eight would say. So I said, okay, well, tell me more about that. And she said, well, I treat people exactly like I want to be treated, but it usually doesn't go well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think adolescents are hypervigilant about how they treat people and whether or not it goes well. They just don't have enough tools to know how to do it differently. So an overall teaching of the Enneagram to adolescents, how each number sees and how each number hears, would be a greater gift, particularly for 15, 16-year-olds, than trying to help them figure out what their number is. Hmm. Because then they could understand difference and find where they fit in terms of their desire to belong in the array of difference that is represented by all nine types. Right. So um, I, I would say that for adolescent ones who are ones, the most difficult thing they face is that ones believe that they are inherently flawed, that there's something wrong with them. And they live with, from little bitty on, to, they, I I would just back up now and say that your Enneagram number is well honed by the time you're five, and it never changes. Mm. So you're the same number all your life. There is no wishing you were another number. But in adolescence, there is the ability to pretend that you're another number. Mm. And that actually serves adolescence well sometimes, socially. Mm. So it's, It's tricky with people who are not yet fully conscious of who they are and what works and what doesn't work at different times. So I think ones who are in the adolescent years struggle most most with believing that there's something inherently wrong with them and with living with a constant critic. Ones have a constant critical voice in their heads that criticizes almost everything they do. And they believe that the critic is their friend. So they're trying to adhere to all of this negative feedback that they have kind of on a loop. Then when they start to care about somebody else, they believe that criticism is caring. Hmm. So they try to help you the way their voices help them. They think everybody's living with an inner critic. And then that being so critical of other people costs them and it costs them in a way in adolescence it's really hard to get back right so that's that's a piece of that i also think that um it's important to talk about ones being in the anger triad because their anger is uh not acceptable to them and so they stuff it all the time if you ask them if they're angry they'll say no they'll They'll be stressed or they have a lot to do or nobody understands them or nobody gets them, but it, it all has to do with the frustration of the fact that there's just imperfection everywhere and imperfection in them. And they feel like they have to fix all of that. So, um, they're critical of themselves and they're critical of other people and there's still imperfection everywhere. And when they stuff that anger as long as they can, then it kind of spews. And then there's a mess that adult ones have a very difficult time cleaning up. Adolescent ones very seldom get the chance to clean it up. Mm -hmm. So it's a socially defining problem that you can't undo.
1: Right. Now talking to ones, how can adults speak to that inner critic in a way? Because I don't perceive that just saying like, oh, it doesn't matter, don't worry about the mistakes. Is not That's going to the be worst helpful thing. Right, no. to a teenager. No. So what can we do to help them with that inner credit?
2: So here's what's really helpful is to say, never be patronizing. You never say it's good enough. Don't be silly. You look beautiful. Don't, hmm. don't do that. What you do is you say, how can I help you have this be what you need it to be? Hmm. How can I help you have what you need to do what you need to do? so that you can be satisfied with it in the end. And that ones can learn to speak into. At first, it's kind of, what? Like nobody's ever offered to help me have it the way I want it to be. People just tell me it's good enough. So that's a, that's a big piece to say, I'd kind of like to help you have what you need here. Is there anything I can do? Hmm. Um, and I think you have to do what I would call for adolescents, surprise, unexpected, unrequested compliments. So you you have to leave them a note that says you did a great job. You have to um, send them a text, leave them a voicemail, because ones dismiss any kind of compliment that's given in real time. Hmm. So for them to be able to receive it, you have to send it at a time when they... Can take it in, but can't argue with you.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: And you need to know that they don't take criticism well because they're being criticized all the time. So it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. I,
0: being married to a one, I'm really not asking lots of questions. I'm really soaking this in right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I me mean, really, this is uh, every time we talk about ones, it's always so helpful to you know, as a as a nine to be yeah. able to know you know, when, when to compliment and when yeah. to, how to support. And cause I don't have that, that critic. I don't.
2: No, no, you don't. <laughs> I don't. No, I'm married to a nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be <laughs> helpful at times maybe, yeah, but you it's, don't have it. It's just
0: so I can, I can relate yeah. you know, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And
1: what's interesting too, is, um, as we move to the two though, but a nine or a two that has a one wing, would they have part of that critic as well? Or is it, I know it would look different, but.
2: Well, they don't, they don't, they have self-talk, but all numbers have self-talk. They don't have the critic, but their oneness, if they have a big one wing, shows itself in behavior. Hmm. And it's as important to them for something to be right and correct as it is to ones. Okay. But they're not, they don't have that inner critic beating them up all the time. Right.
0: All right. So moving to twos.
2: So I'm not going to talk about gender difference much as we talk through this because I don't think it's important in every number, but it's important here. Um, So let's start with the understanding that twos are in the feeling triad and they take in all information with feelings and then they feel like they want to do something about it. And so twos are the most emotionally available of all the types on the Enneagram. They are unaware of their own feelings. What they pick up is everybody else's feelings. So they end up putting themselves kind of in a helpful psychic kind of role, you know, where I know that you're hurting and I I know how to help or they do nice things for other people and they want something in return, but they don't always know that they want something in return. They want appreciation and they want you to want them and they don't always know that. But what happens, unfortunately, with adolescents is male twos are seen as sometimes as too soft and having too many feelings and being too emotional and being too relational and too available. And um, so it's a situation where what we appreciate in female twos during adolescence, we don't appreciate right, yeah. in male twos. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. tricky. And, um, another thing that has to be really watched for in twos is they feel responsible for helping other people. So, um, twos pretty much in early adolescence disconnect from their own life and their own needs and find the satisfaction that they get from helping other people with their needs and their problems. And if you try to talk with a two about themselves, they usually turn the conversation to have it be more about you and how they could help you and what you might need. Twos don't have very good self-esteem. They um, tend to feel like that they're not enough on the one hand and that people rely on them too much and take them for granted on the other hand. And so they feel good in the beginning of relationships, but then they feel like people don't stay close enough usually for them. Mm. Twos um, as adolescents often find themselves in caregiving roles for um, other kids or little kids. And, it's really important that adults who work with adolescents in groups know where and who the twos are because the twos are the ones who know the stories that make up everybody else's life. Hmm. So really, in a group of adolescents, the information about everybody lies with the two. Hmm. They are reticent to share that. They generally think they can handle things on their own. And... um they pretty much give until they're exhausted and return to their own lives kind of feeling sad and not really wanted and not appreciated and that lasts for a few days and then they're right back in and they don't have any idea how to ask for what they need no no clue i've been working at this for a long time and the hardest question anybody ever asks me is what do i feel or what do i need hmm. So, um, workers with adolescent twos would feel like twos withhold their needs and it's just that they don't know. And there's an exacerbation that comes with how can I make you feel better? And you don't know. And you say you don't know. And that seems unlikely. And, um, it's, it's tricky. It's very
0: tricky. Is there a good way to ask a two? I listen to that question?
2: Well, you can ask, but it's not that they're not telling you, it's that they don't know. Just all. And it doesn't help for you to guess. So um, it would be really good to encourage twos to journal. And it would be really good to give twos journaling, adolescent twos journaling starts. So that might sound something like I feel alone when. I feel important when. You could do that verbally, but twos would uh, give you a pleasing answer rather than work for the real answer. Mm -hmm. You know, ones are kind of longing to hear and believe that they're good, but twos are longing to hear and believe that they're wanted. So uh, traditional Enneagram teaching suggests that twos, sevens, and nines are the numbers that are most prone to addiction. And I don't agree with that. I think sevens are the most prone to addiction. But I understand where that teaching came from because twos uh, are longing to belong. I think all adolescents are, but Mm -hmm. not to the same degree that some are. And twos are all about belonging. And they will give up more than they can manage in order to belong, which gets to be crisis territory if -hmm. it's not monitored and managed carefully.
1: Well, I can see how that'd be a problem as a teenager, which I'm a two, but, um, I was telling my husband after reading this book, I was like, I feel like I have a lot of friends and I think a lot of people would say they feel close to me, Mm -hmm. but I was like, it's really hard for me to rely on that one person. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me to say like, no, that's my, that's my person. That's my go-to. Right. And I was like, and after reading and the more I study the Enneagram, I was like, I understand why that is and it is interesting because i would perceive that i'm really good at knowing feelings mm-hmm. but as you talk but i'm not really good at knowing my own and so having to look out for the twos and making sure that they're taking care of themselves because i feel like that's a hard place for a two of they're taking care of everyone else right. and not actually looking after themselves
2: well and they're not and they don't know how and they don't know what they need when you ask and so you have to figure it out mm-hmm. you know i think we just have to do things for twos without asking them mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, I think the reality too is it's hard to have a go to person when you are the go to person. Mm -hmm. When that's the role that you've given yourself. Right. Mm. Tricky.
1: It is tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I I feel like I'm being
2: (laughs) taught to here. You You heard enough about twos. You want to move on to threes, maybe? The two (laughs) twos in the room. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) We're good talking about my feelings now. Let's move (laughs) on to other people. So, you know, for threes, um, threes wake up in the morning while they're brushing their teeth and they think I have to be successful today. It's what I got to do. So how am I going to do that? And so generally adolescents are in organizations that they'll be good at where they can achieve and be successful. They are, uh, they plan the day before what they're going to wear, how they're going to be, who they're going to eat lunch with, how they're going to do their day. And all of that is aimed at being successful. Richard Rohr says many things that I quote regularly, but one of the most important things that he's ever said, I believe, is there's nothing sadder on the Enneagram than an unsuccessful two. And it might, in my experience of working with adolescents and kids, I would just say that did I just say an unsuccessful two? meant mm-hmm. at three. Richard Rohr says, <laughs> there's, I, we're tracking I, I, with you. <laughs> yeah, I've done yeah. some podcasts this morning. I'm, I got to watch myself and be very mindful. So, um, Richard says there's nothing sadder than an unsuccessful three. And I, I would say there's nothing, uh, more painful to watch than an unsuccessful three who's an adolescent.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Um, It's like their entire measure of themselves is set culturally. And you know what adolescent culture looks like. You know, some places you have to be an athlete, some places you have to be smart, some places you have to be pretty. Some, you know, there are all these expectations and threes who can't meet them really struggle but they don't intuitively know to pick one or two that they can meet and then rise there mm-hmm. and so i think threes need help channeling their energy they they need help figuring out what they're good at and then going for that so that they can be the best at that mm-hmm. you know uh eights love competition but they like it because the energy's high. Threes love competition, but they think they have to be first. And second place really means you shouldn't have shown up. Hmm. That's a that's a big burden. That's a lot of pressure. If you're an adolescent. And then if you are successful, you have to maintain that somehow. And if people surpass you, that's not a good thing. And the other thing that is very tricky for threes and people who are adolescent for threes period but people who work with adolescents really need to know this and that is threes can be the poster child for any organization that they belong to so in traditional enneagram language threes are referred to as chameleons and i don't use that language much and i wouldn't use it now if i was talking to just adolescents but if i'm talking to people who work with adolescents then i think that's a real important word for us to identify Because threes behave differently depending on who they're with. And depending on their neediness, they're willing to do a lot to belong. Hmm. So they don't ever get all their friends together. They have to keep the basketball team separate from the cheerleaders, separate from their church group, separate from their cousins, separate from the neighborhood group. Because they behave differently with all five groups in order to be the top of what the group requires and they do that intuitively and so when you grow it up you know it, it, we live in dallas in a three city and anti experts know and say that the united states is a three country hmm. so if you take a three kid in a three city in a three country then everything they could do to be healthier is not what's prescribed by the culture So they just blend right in, and they easily lose themselves in that.
1: I feel like, especially in middle school and high school, too, there are more competitions, more rankings with sports, with social media, and how many followers you have, and grades. And so to feel that pressure, not only as an adult, but also as a teenager, when you're not only trying to figure out who you are, but you're also being compared to everyone already. Mm -hmm. Man, you're right. That is... That would be so, and is so difficult to watch teenagers
2: struggle with that. It's really hard. I I just think it's almost impossible. And I, you know, sometime, I'm going to stay away from it today because it would take too much time, but sometime uh, we should get together or you should get somebody who can come do a whole thing with you on each number for adolescents and social media. Hmm. Because the problem with that, in particular for threes, is that you don't have to be who you really are on social media so threes are so good at externals and at creating image and at image crafting that by the time they get to their early 20s they're not sure who they are behind Mm -hmm. all that image Mm -hmm. so they just keep maintaining image it's very tricky Mm -hmm. very tricky and successful so you you know if you're winning then (laughs) why would you work on stuff because you don't know that it's going to get you later right
0: as helpers, how do we help help a three, <laughs> an adolescent three?
2: Here's what I would suggest. The best way they can help themselves is by answering this question. What's consistent in you no matter who you're with? Like in all your groups that you're with, what what's consistent that doesn't change? Mm-hmm. And then you start building with them on that person. Mm-hmm. That, like, I'm always inclusive. So you start building with that. Uh, You know, whatever it is. And um, I think the earlier you can help threes um, practice when they feel comfortable doing so, being consistent no matter what group they're with, the better adulthood's going to be for them.
1: Hmm.
2: And that doesn't mean the more successful they'll be in adulthood. It means the better it better, will be
0: yeah. for them. Right, right. It's important to distinguish that with the three. Yeah. yeah,
2: and you know, threes are in the feeling triad, but they have feelings and they set them aside. So they don't really... They, they use feelings to read the crowd. They're not very good at reading their own feelings. That's a real weak spot mm-hmm. for them. Absolutely. Interesting.
1: And Going deeper into the feeling triad,
2: of yeah. course, is our force. <laughs> so... um When I work with youth pastors, here's what I say. You may be the most influential person in an adolescent four's life. Now, and potentially for years to come. You may be the only person that that four confides in about what they really feel. So, let's talk about why for a bit four is the most complex number on the enneagram they are highly committed to authenticity but as adolescents they find their authenticity in being different so think about that because it's kind of an oxymoron if being individuated and different is how you have to be authentic then aren't you image crafting and the answer is yes you are but what you're desperately trying to do is not look like everybody else. So I was in a city recently that in the windows, a very wealthy city, that in the windows had uh, of a hamburger joint, had pictures of all the girls on the drill team and all the football players and all the cheerleaders and they all looked exactly the same. Hmm. There was an image that you had to fit to be that. And what you have to know is that fours are desperately fighting against that hmm. because they believe that they need to be seen and known for who they are. So if you work with fours who are adolescents, then the, you, you have to give them time because they know they're different They know their perspective is different. Uh, In the tradition that I come from, we believe that 40 to 50% of the world is sixes. Um, And we also believe that the fewest of any number is fours. So a lot of people don't know a four. Um, Youth groups may have one four. Uh, Mm. They're not, they're just not everywhere. Mm. And they're, they're the most unique as well. So. I am sorry to say to the two of you that I don't have enough language to talk about how complex I think adolescence is for fours. So so I'm going to do the best I can. I don't know a place on the planet that has less permission for authenticity than middle school. There's just really no room for that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't fit the mold, then you're alone. You eat alone, you're alone. Even if you're in an organization, you're alone. And you have to live a while for people to want to spend time understanding how you see. So I think maybe one of the things that I didn't say at the top um, is that your Enneagram number If I was going to do an elevator speech, I would say that it's based on nine ways of seeing. And I I would say that the four's way of seeing is highly unique, and it involves texture and context and content, and it's not surface or smooth, and that's a lot to put in a kid. It's a lot to put on a fourteen year old who just really kind of wants to fit in and have somebody to eat lunch with and hang out with on the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a big proponent for uh, programs for kids involving opportunities for artistic endeavor mm-hmm. it It is a misunderstanding to think that all um, artists and musicians and writers and poets, dancers are fours, but lots of them are fours. Yeah. And there's, in, in more affluent schools, there is opportunity and funding for programs where they can shine. And in some systems and schools and churches, there are not programs where they can shine. And I think it's incumbent on us to try to create them. So I'm a big advocate for not cutting the arts out of Mm -hmm. school and just because that's a home for some Enneagram numbers and they might not find it somewhere else. Now there are also fours who are great athletes and you know, I'm not, I don't want to paint the wrong picture, but I do want to paint that adult fours really struggle and I don't, I don't see how adolescent fours breathe. Mm. Like I mm. I would think it's hard to breathe. Right. So correct that me. That sounded if- awfully dramatic. <laughs> it did. And I'm trying to decide if I want to take it back. And I, I just don't think I do. And the reason I don't think I want to is because if you're working with adolescents, if you can't take in fours on that level, I don't know how you're going to be able to meet them where they are. Mm. And they need you to.
0: Well, yeah, and I think you talked about youth pastors being such an influence. Those those are the guys who, you know, like to be creative in the ways that they engage teenagers. So it's not just one way. That's right. um, That maybe you would as a coach or a teacher, but a pastor is going to really have that opportunity to do a lot of different things to engage that student. So
2: here's what I say when I leave youth pastors. At the end of the day, I pointedly do my ending. And turn back around and say, You need to make room for them because you may be the only person they're talking to.
1: So now you're saying you're dramatic, but I feel like the fours love, not always love, but that's how they live. And that's how oftentimes they can think. But correct me if I'm wrong, I hear you saying, that they want to be different, but want to be celebrated in those differences in right. a sense of belonging. Right. So not different as in you're different, you need to stay over there and be separate, but different of we celebrate and we see your differences, now come be a part of they, what we're doing.
2: Yeah. What they want to be is authentic. And they, and if everybody's dressed the same, you know, they would look at the poster where everybody's got the same haircut and say, why would anybody do that? Hmm. Because it's inauthentic, they would say. And that might be just right for half of the people in the photo. But do you know what I'm saying? When everything looks the same, fours think that people are being disingenuous. Right. And they don't trust that. They just don't trust it. And they know that they have an inner need to differentiate themselves from other people while belonging. Mm Mm-hmm. That it's not that they don't want to belong. It's that they want to belong as who they are. And, you know, you got to watch for fours. They're the only people on the Enneagram who can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. Fours uh, are comfortable with melancholy. It, it's their sweet spot, actually. And fours will tell you that they feel melancholy every day, but that they've never been depressed. So adolescent fours spend their lives with people telling them to cheer up. And the adolescent fours tell me that when people tell them to cheer up, they want to throw up. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm not sad. I'm taking in everything, and some of it is sad. Hmm. So I, it's a complexity that's worth going after, but those are kids who need a hearing. And other kids aren't mature enough to give it to them for the most part. So I'm just going to tell you a story. Maybe it'll help. When I was first learning the Enneagram, so remember we're back 30 years now, probably 25 years ago, I uh, went to the mall, and you remember goth kids? Well, I, th- I was learning the Enneagram, and I thought, I bet you all those kids are fours. So I went to the mall. Uh, it was Town East Mall. We lived in Grand Prairie, and I went to Town East Mall, and they were all there in their trench coats and their boots and their bags and their dark everything. And I rounded them up and said, I'll buy you dinner if you'll let me ask you questions for an hour. And they said, okay. So now this is a trip, right? What I'm about to say, I I realize what I'm doing. (laughs) This was before MySpace. So when I asked those kids why they were dressed like that, they explained to me that they all go to different schools and it's how they found each other. And they said, if we were dressed like everybody else, We couldn't find each other, and nobody would ever notice us. And that was an expression of difference for them. It was not an expression of rebellion. It was, wow, when I listen to y'all talk, that's not what I see. When I hear what you do with your time, that's not what I want to do with my time. And so now they're called emo kids, and they hang out in coffee shops instead. But it's the same kids. So I'm I'm done preaching about that.
0: (laughs) Incredibly helpful,
2: but Uh, it's the most a little preachy.
1: (laughs) Is the most maybe beneficial way for adults to interact with them to listen and authenticity? Because I heard you say saying cheer up, trying to fix it is not what a four needs.
2: Well, usually there's nothing to fix. Hmm. Fours are not uncomfortable in their melancholy. We're uncomfortable with their melancholy
1: that was my tunis coming out huh? that's right so we're really fixing <laughs> us we're making ourselves feel yeah. better right
2: <laughs> yeah it's tricky
0: all right that's a wrap on this one thank you so much for listening a special thanks to Carly Duke and to Kelly Fan for producing this podcast also to Luke Cabrera for our awesome podcast music if you want to know more about Luke and his music Check out his contact info in the description. Well, this podcast is for the helpers and we really hope you feel helped. If there's something we haven't talked about or a topic that you're really interested in, email us at podcast at teenlife.ngo and we will do our best to get to that topic. We will see you next week.